Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Arcana Uncorked. The podcast where we uncork some homebrew and discuss whether or not it is right for your game. I'm Patrick. And I'm Andrew. And what do we have to discuss today, Andrew? We are getting back to our roots by doing a pair of subclasses, this time for the monk. Ah, yes, the monk. We do love the monk in, like, the first seven to nine levels of gameplay. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. We give the monk a lot of shit for A, being a stunning strike class and nothing more, and B, for not having the 11th level damage kicker. Although I've softened on that point recently, as I've recalled that monks just eventually do a D12 with their unarmed strike. It just doesn't happen at the levels that you expect it to. Yeah, there really is kind of this, like, cognitive dissonance because you don't get these, like, huge power spikes that other classes get, but instead you're just, like, passively getting stronger every two to three levels instead, which it makes leveling feel a little bit weak if you're not paying attention to what's going on. But yeah, I mean, like, at the end, if you wanted to do four unarmed strikes for 4d12 damage plus four times your strength or dexterity you can totally do that and that's that's not bad damage yeah no monks are really fun to play we do have some issues with their design and also monks are had to fit into like euro fantasy because they're not monks in the tradition of medieval europe they're monks in the tradition of asia <laughs> yeah I think that's something that I remember I ran into when I started playing the game, because I was used to, I mean, growing up Catholic, that's a thing where you say monk, I think of, you know, the person running the distillery on the mountaintop in the monastery, less so thinking of Buddhist traditions or things like that, which means all of a sudden, when you think of your traditional, what I call the traditional 5e, late Middle Ages slash Renaissance Western Europe, you do run into a bit of a clash there. Luckily, this is what homebrewing worlds is for, so you can try and make sense of the diversity and flavors in your game, but not super easy to integrate if your world is hyper-niched. Yeah, although to an extent I like that because it does give you a reason to work out different cultures in your world that are based on different real-world cultures and to not just be like, This continent is the Europe continent, and there's nothing else about it. I think there's a really compelling reason to understand, especially because monks are not traditional spellcasters. Most of them don't spellcast at all, and those who do spellcast in mysterious ways that we'll get into. But it gives you a a reason to think about differentiation in spirituality and mysticism, and what what relationship people have with the weave, or whatever source of magic you homebrew into your world. Yeah. It's kind of a cool way to think about intellectual diversity. In the words of one of our favorite homebrew creators, Kibble is Tasty, he's always said that to him, monks read as psionic characters, and he reads as a form of mental energy. But the great thing about monks is that that's a perfectly valid response to what monks do and how they do it, but literally any answer could work. And different orders of monks in your world probably have different answers for how they do what they do, even if the techniques are relatively similar. 
Yeah, so that actually segues pretty well into a question that I have for you, which is, what do you what do you look for when you are differentiating different types of monk subclasses? I know for me, one of the big things is the way that you use key energy and trying to create interesting alternatives, but I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with use of key as being a defining aspect of a subclass, because key is the monk's basic ability, their kind of pool of power by which they do things. That said, I don't like when subclasses are overly dependent on key, because the base class of monk, you can basically use all your key points doing things that the base monk class gives you, and be very happy with that. So it's great if a subclass gives you a bunch of cool key powers, but if you already need those for your flurry of blows or for your step of the wind or your stunning strike, then the subclass is going to feel like it never gets used. Yeah, I think it is... Stunning Strike, in particular, obviously, is kind of the meme of the Monk class, and I think in all reality, it has put homebrew creators in a little bit of a box of like, all right, well, if I want any key power that I load into the class to get used, it has to compete with what is one of the strongest class abilities in the game, so that there's like a bit of a box there for your subclass design. Which is why often I enjoy monk subclasses that instead of doing that, kind of change up their basic attack, you know, their non-key point strikes, um, or give them something to do that is less combat-focused. Monks do get a couple of what the, we call ribbon abilities, like their ability to speak any language eventually. But I feel like monks can benefit from a kind of, like, skill niche in the subclass, where it's like, well, this monk is really good at being a detective monk or something. Yeah, I think the, the ribbons that are inherited by the monk class on the whole tend to be pretty, like, pretty broad. It's languages, it's living for an in, pretty much an indefinite life. You know, these things that are kind of broad and sweeping and don't super influence, I'd say, your day-to-day gameplay. So the more that a subclass can bring that in, I think the better it does at actually differentiating what it means to be a monk. And those uh, abilities happen at such high levels. You know, the subclass design space has enough low-level power budget to give you those kind of ribbon abilities. Wait, you you mean that like the the high level abilities at seventeenth through twentieth actually don't matter that much because a lot of people don't play the game at that level and also it feels weird, man. Yeah, I mean once you know, seventeenth level a wizard has wish, so balance has gone out the window. So both of these monk subclasses that we're looking at today are spellcasters, and I put that in quotation marks. You can't see my hands, but I do. Because only one of them spellcasts traditionally. But both of them are different takes on spellcasting, and in some ways kind of responses to what is generally considered the weakest subclass of the player's handbook, Monk. And that is the Way of the Four Elements. Yes. Way of the Four Elements is meant to, I think, reflect what a lot of people, at least in the younger audiences, will understand as the Avatar The Last Airbender 
style of being a monk. So Aang's control over fire, earth, water, and air, and kind of specifically meant to be a master of all four. It is an interesting subclass, and I think one of the reasons that it gets a lot of flack is it is meant to be a spellcaster in a pseudo way. So you get the only feature for the entire subclass is one feature that gives you access to these elemental traditions, which really are just spells that you can cast for the most part. There are a few that are like pseudo magical abilities, but most of them are just like, you can cast fireball now, have a good day using key points. And it's, it's kind of clunky. I mean, I would compare it to like, if the Eldritch Knight subclass for the fighter, which has its issues, but is ultimately a fine subclass, decided that your spellcasting for that subclass was using the same pool that you drew your second wind or your action surge from. So like, yeah, you can cast magic weapon, but that's in place of using your second wind feature. Yeah, it's, I understand the philosophy of wanting to tie it into the existing power budget so you don't mess things up too much. But at the same time, I think if you're looking to balance kind of this weird short rest gain of key versus the long rest feature of spellcasting, it makes more sense to just literally have two separate systems than it is to try and tie the two resources into one base pool. It's it's a bit tricky, and I think wizards put themselves in kind of a hard spot trying to do the math on how you make it work while not making monks feel like they don't have access to either of their resources. So... Clearly, there's some better manner of doing both elemental monks and monks that have spells. And the first one of these monastic traditions takes a stab at both of them, but mostly being an elemental monk. And this is the Way of the Elemental Bendo, which was written by user McCrebby98. As we know, monastic traditions are gained at thread level, and there are four abilities you gain over the course of your leveling at thread, sixth, eleventh, and seventeenth. The thread level ability for the Way of the Elemental Bendo subclass allows you to choose one element, and that choice will affect the rest of the subclass for you. But at first, what it gives you is a new type of attack. Yeah, so in place of one of your normal weapon attacks, you can actually use this as any of your attacks. I think you can theoretically do it for all of your attacks on one turn. There's no technical restriction. It's like an unarmed strike to you. You can swap between bending strikes and normal attacks as much as you want. Yeah, uh, so you get this bending strike, and it depend. this is also at the point in the subclass where you choose your primary element to continue working on so and that will determine what the effect of your bending strike is beyond the damage that you deal so for example if you become a firebender your bending strike deals fire damage and when you're directly under the sun uh, you can add half your wisdom modifier to the damage kind of a damage kicker depending on whether or not you're outside whereas airbending means you can also try to push the creature in a direction if you hit them and it deals bludgeoning damage Yep. Additionally, at 6th level, when you normally get magic strikes with your fists, you also get magic strikes with your bending, which is just a little note at the back to 
ensure that there is parity between all of your attacks. The second kind of more ribbon feature at thread level is uh, basically you get one of the elemental cantrips. It doesn't say you get it, but it allows you to manipulate your chosen element in kind of small non-combat ways. Yeah, this is written, I'm going to guess, pretty broadly. <laughs> and you do run into some issues when you get that broads. Like, for example, you can cause up to five feet of your element to shape itself to a crude form that you designate. The The fun story that we always have with things like that is, well, water and blood are, like, practically the same thing. And then all of a sudden your waterbenders become a bloodbender. All that to say, at third level, you might want to just talk with your player about, like, what counts or not. The fact is, is you might be like, oh, well, if I build a glider as an airbender, I can fly. Well, no, don't be like that to your DM. The way that you should treat this in general, and really, honestly, treat any, like, homebrew that comes from popular media, is use the class as it's written. There's great opportunity here to flavor your class abilities as being influenced by your subclass, by this elemental bending. The document actually goes into detail about how your step of the wind could be you being carried by a gust of wind. Or when an attack misses you, you brought up a wall of your element briefly to cause it to miss. Just because these things aren't like explicitly written into like mechanical things you can do don't mean they aren't happening. Yeah. So like when it comes to mechanics, stick to what's on the paper. When it comes to what it looks like and in a role-playing sense, have at it. I think that's a great opportunity to play up the flavor, whether you're being faithful to Avatar or not. Yeah, absolutely. So the sixth level feature is called Wisdom of the Elements, and it gives you an extra thing you can do with your element. So if you bend a fire you can do the fire or lightning redirection thing that Zuko does by expending a reaction to redirect fire or lightning damage towards another character. Water allows you to attempt to do water healing, and, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, so overall, these aren't meant to be huge damage potential. It's really meant to mostly be either, like, sort of defensive or also, like, healing or movement-based, which is, I think, generally how the 6th level feature for monk subclasses goes. You know, the fire one will do some damage, but it's not going to be crazy. Yeah, and also it requires another person tracking you with fire. Yeah, so pretty niche use. So it's kind of nice, and they, they also come with, like, little ribbons, so, like, if you take fire, then you get resistance to cold damage, and you don't suffer extreme temperatures. If you take earth, then you advantage on saving throws against falling prone. So it's kind of nice. You get uses of the features themselves based on your wisdom modifier and regain long rest. So these are effectively spells, but they're not treated as spells, and they're not you don't spend key. Although you can use key to spend them more times if you like decide that you've run out of your long rest uses and you want to do it again. Yeah, this is exactly what we were talking about with the way of the four elements, how it should be done, where you have a use number that doesn't dip into your base class key points, but then if you really need to, you can get extra uses with key. Yep. So overall, I think that it does a good job and echoes, this keep echoing into the like third and also then the 17th level features of making a pretty decent distinction between what is 
power that you are gaining from the subclass versus what is borrowed power from your key pool. The 11th level feature gives you two area effect options, essentially, a 30-foot line or a 10-foot radius sphere. This does require key to use, but it's only one key point, so it's almost always, if you're catching enough people, going to be a good call to do. And then your element that you've chosen gives you a small secondary effect, extra fire damage, uh, pushing people away with air, knocking people prone with water. Yeah, you do get the ability to scale damage based on key, which is kind of pretty cool. Also can be a little bit nuts at like higher levels, depending on how many key you're willing to spend. So for example, if you your bending wave means that you basically choose a, a circle and you do more martial arts die, plus then they do extra fire damage equal to your wisdom modifier, and then you could theoretically make it like five or six of your martial die, which can be a lot of damage, but also then, like, that's, like, the nice thing is, like, if you want to dip stronger into your key, you can. If you'd prefer to have this just be the feature itself, you can do so as well. The damage math probably works out. I kind of trust the balance on this one. It's been through a few iterations. Yeah, this is dipping into your key points. Pretty hard. But also, it gives monks a thing that they normally don't get, which is area damage and the ability to nova. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I didn't, I, you really don't get a lot of that. I mean, I think, like, Sun Soul Monk gets f access to Fireball, which is, like, a thing. But other than that, and Way of the Four Elements, you get that, too. But most other subclasses, like, AoE is not a thing that you get, and here's an opportunity to do it. Yeah, which it, it makes sense for the 11th level feature of a monk, which normally monks don't get traditionally automatically extra damage at 11th level, but this does give them a way to more efficiently deal their damage, depending on the arrangement of enemies, which is cool, and a good way to not just, like, buff monks at 11th level, where there's no basis for that in uh, Wizards of the Coast content. So we'll go ahead and move on to the last of the features, which, as Andrew alluded to earlier, is kind of this mastery technique where you get access to what I guess are kind of like the elevated techniques if you've watched avatars. Like, for example, a basic waterbender is really only going to be able to like bend water and do some minor healing. But there's this lost technique instead of waterbending where you can do bloodbending. So that allows you to actually hurt creatures by paralyzing them through the blood in their body which is very metal very cool and is meant to kind of be this capstone of like you have gained access to super secret techniques so it's pretty metal i like it yeah these are great um you get a choice of two depending on what element you have so bloodbending is the draco mastery of water the slightly less gross one is spirit bending which allows you to cast a number of spells, Calm Emotions, Banishment, and Revivify using key points. Again, this is key point spellcasting, but also this is the 17th level feature. Yeah, some of these use spellcasting and some of them don't. So like, for example, and I think usually it looks pretty much as I go through that like more or less one of the features is kind of spellcasting dependent or not. Um, I mean, for example, Mastery of Air, one of them is you can, like, cast Freedom of Movement, and also you gain a flying speed. But the other one is that you steal breath out of your opponent, and, like, that's its own thing. And so, like, the, like, 
actual actions you can take tend to be kind of key dependent, but the ability to cast them also is not. And like we mentioned, 17th level is pretty high. At that point, you have like 17 key points, something like that. It's, you have a lot of them, which yeah. means I don't feel too bad about you having to spend some to have access to your strongest abilities. Yeah, and I, I do like that it gets more spellcasting intensive as you go up in levels, because honestly, that really helps Marshall's feel effectual after a certain point in terms of the sort of supernatural things they can do. And obviously, monks are a very supernatural class. Nobody will argue that they have to be fighters where they're just, like, whacking more times. Gosh, yeah. I mean, they, they really can't be if you want to have, like, meaningful differentiation in play style. Uh, so if the monk is meant to be this master of wielding magical powers, but not in the form of spell casting, you have to you have to reconcile the fact that spells are still just more effective than marshals are at higher levels, especially for Nova AOE. So the ability for some of these masteries, mastery powers, and the eleventh level feature to compensate for that puts the monk in a better place, I think, honestly. And I think that this subclass does a good job of being able to keep up with casters in terms of what you can do. Yeah, ultimately the number of spells they get is paltry, even compared to the four elements monk. But what you trade for that is a true specialization and really feeling like you're good at the thing you are doing. It's a, a nice way to combine things together. Yeah, I totally forgot to mention, but I'm going to mention it now, that this... Way of the Elemental Bender tradition is a little bit antithetical to Wizards of the Coast design in that Wizards doesn't like it to force a subclass or a class into like a single damage type. There's no pyromancy wizard. Even, you know, the most specialized sorcerers still have access to the whole sorcerer spell list and all the damages that they can do with that. Yeah. And it's a weird thing, because D&D 5th edition seems to actively punish over-specking into a single element. That said, it is really a true fantasy of a lot of players of D&D to have that, like, uber-specialization, I am the best at this thing sort of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a challenge, I think, from a player creation standpoint to do it. I mean, really, when I think of this from a personal experience standpoint, Eskel, the sorceress in our current campaign, is a storm sorceress who is heavily specced into fire. And it really, if it weren't for taking the like NLML adept feat that lets her ignore resistance to fire damage, there's a lot of damage potential that she probably already lost due to just enemies that you throw at them. Fire is the most resisted damage type of the magic types. So that's definitely, I guess, one of the sort of weaknesses of this homebrew is that, like, to the extent that this doesn't resonate with the way that Wizards often kind of punishes single specking, it could have some weakness there. That being said, I think it does a pretty good job at giving you properties of your attacks that are not just the damage type you deal to get around that factor. Yeah, and also, you're a monk. You can always still punch things with your magic fists. Yes. But this is just something that I've observed in and out of the game, where Wizards really wants you to have, like, two or three damage types that you rely on. And a lot of characters, as um, supported by the existence of this subclass, really do want to kind of be, I'm going to say one-trick pony that has a negative connotation, but, you know, a one-trick pony in the best way. Yeah, it's it's fine. I mean, it's it's what it is, and I think you kind of have to 
have to live with the consequences. And I'd say if you're ever worried about it, it's time to have, like, just make sure you discuss with your DM, like, okay, to what extent is this going to hurt me? And in what way can I be empowered to do things and making sure that I'm not going to make a fire monk and then proceed to, like, go into the elemental realm of fire and not be able to use any of my cool powers. Or maybe you're empowered by your connection to the elemental plane of fire and you become a wicked good bender. Like when like there's a solar eclipse or whatever. Like, like yeah, you make it yeah. work. Cool ways to interact with the elemental planes. I'm like 98% sure that the solar eclipse is bad for firebenders. That's like a plot point. You know, now that you say that, I'm almost positive <laughs> that you're right. It's the common, the common, the, the, the one, one that yeah, empowers yeah. the firebenders. I, we're not going to talk about it because we'd be here for two hours, but this subclass is just also so good for, like, world building. Like, what are these schools that teach elemental bending, and what's their relationship to each other? Yeah, I. this gives me a lot of thoughts about, like, the way that you build out this relationship, and, you know, are these things related to the planes and their elemental alignment, or is this more of a spiritual thing that somehow is connected to nature and is almost more druidic in nature a lot of ways you can kind of work around that the last thing i'll say about this before we move on uh, is that if you're like man i really wanted to be like the master of all four elements though like my boy ang and cora there is a feat at the end of the document that allows you to become the avatar master of all four elements and bringer of balance to the world quote where you get to choose kind of of the remaining elements, choose the other three in a and rank them in an order so that you like increasingly get features from the other ones as you level up. And you can in fact enter the avatar state where you just have access to all of the abilities from every element that you like are level appropriate for. So don't be too worried about it if you're really upset. If you want to take that, you can. I would say that like talk to your dm because this is like the only time that i have seen a feat that is subclass specific or even class specific so like just i mean it's also brutally overpowered like this is a story feat but like i would honestly lock this one behind a level gate or even turn this into a magic item that you need to get access to it could be an evolving magic item would be kind of a good way to implement this is like maybe you get these things but you get them over time and that way the dm has a way to time gate your powers your power creep it doesn't actually, like, up your damage any from just being, like, a firebender. But obviously, more options is more power. And this gives you just a whole hell of a lot more options. Yes, choice is power. With that in mind, we can get to talking about another form of power, the almighty power of the Force, as we move on to our other subclass of the day, the Way of the Weave, a Jedi-inspired third caster class subclass so this takes the idea of monk spell casting and does it literally the opposite way by making the monk into a true thread caster third casters famously known for being well i don't know if they're famously known for but at least in my opinion it's always been one of those things where i'm like well do i want a third caster or do i want to multi-class into a caster so I can actually do casting properly, which we'll talk about as we go through this, because that's definitely something that's been on my mind. But third casters are definitely a a way to meet a fantasy that has mixed results depending on the way that you look at it. So the way of the weave monk is a monk that is meant to be like a Jedi, 
they blend martial arts and spell casting, and they specialize in divination magic and transmutation magic, which I guess in the author's mind, by the way, the author of this particular homebrew is the Winking Wizard. And divination and transmutation do, off the top of my head, seem like the best way to represent force powers without making an entirely new spell list. Yeah. If you're really trying to connect this to like being a Jedi, you're definitely looking, I'd say, more at a Jedi than a Sith, clearly, because uh, you don't have access to things like force lightning or honestly like suffocation. Like those things don't really exist for this class unless you hunt down spells as hard as you can. Yeah, because this is the exact same way the Eldritch Knight or the Arcane Trickster is limited, where you primarily know from these two schools, and then once in a blue moon, you get to just go wild with a spell. Yeah. Before we started, you uh, you kind of put at that, like, this is sort of a Jedi in the way that, like, Obi-Wan is a Jedi during the Attack of the Clones, <laughs> where kind of inve- doing an investigative level of being on the streets, using your Jedi mind tricks, powers, and things to get make your way around. Yeah, well, not mind tricks, you can't. No, you can't actually do mind tricks. No enchantment magic. But because of the divination focus, there's like this gives like a lot of like semi-precog stuff. I mean, this class is a fantasy version of the same idea as a Jedi. It is not saying you are playing a Jedi who's dropped into a fantasy world. If you want to play a Jedi, go check out Galafile's SW5E, which is literally just Star Wars in the 5E system. Yeah, it's a pretty good port. We're not going to talk about it today. We might dive into it a little bit later at some point we've played a little bit of that and we enjoy it a lot but this is those same ideas of the jedi in a fantasy setting (laughs) yes and basically i think there were there are two good options for implementing the force either it's psionic power or it's something like this where it's a spellcaster with the focus on not evocation magic and that's pretty much the direction that they've gone yeah, because there is the 3.5 monk subclass, or not monk sub, it's not a monk subclass, it's its own class in 3.5, the Soul Knife, which is very much has Jedi vibes going on. Yeah, I think that was one of the ones that I've definitely seen UA for it. I can't remember if it's one of the Tasha's ones or not, but... There's a Tasha's subclass for the Soul Knife, or the Soul Blade, maybe it's called. That's a rogue, I disagree with that. And then there's Homebrew, that is a monk subclass, that's a Soul Knife. Yeah, so options available for there, but this is going to be your homebrew monk version, at least the one that we're reviewing today. The, the one that is spellcasting, because we're talking about monks and spellcasting, is the very tenuous theme of this episode. Yep, so just to go through some of the other features past it. So obviously you're a third caster, and you focus on divination or transmutation spells, so those are all of the spells that you learn should be one of those two. Schools of Magic, although when you gain additional spells learned at 8th, 14th, and 20th level, those can come from any School of Magic. So, you know, roughly like one out of every three or four ends up being a spell from any school. And then you uh, use Wisdom as your spellcasting modifier for these spells. Nothing else would make sense. Yeah, because God, why would we make monks into a tri-stat dependent class that sounds like hell so that's what that is um 
And so that's the main third level feature when you take the class. Uh, the other one, which is pretty exciting, or at least <laughs> touches on some pretty hot topic D&D fun times, TM, is foreseen fighting, which means when you cast True Strike, which is a cantrip you know by default uh, with Way of the Weave, you can do so as a bonus action and without needing to maintain concentration. Yeah, this makes True Strike eminently usable, even if you're not using the Evolving Cantrips version that we talked about in episode 5. That said, it means that you're not doing any of your other bonus action things as a monk. Now, a lot of those cost key and you can't do forever, but the thing that you're sacrificing is that third, well, second, and then at fifth level, third attack you can do as a bonus action for free. Yeah, and the idea would be that theoretically um, your average damage increases because you're hitting more. No, it can't be better. Because think about it this way. If your monk is at third level and you can either attack twice or attack once at advantage, attacking twice is strictly better. Twice is strictly better. Because uh, imagine you roll two hits on the advantage d20 roll. Oh, you're right. If you hadn't taken that, you would have hit twice, but you've only hit once. Yeah. Wait a second. Right. This it's... is strictly worse. You all are listening to us in live, thinking about this a little more critically. I, yeah. No, in the average situation, it's really not going to help you. I'm trying to think, like, if you were at disadvantage for all attacks and you made one normal instead of... And so instead of taking two attacks at disadvantage, you take one attack at normal... And I think that is strictly better because you're not because you're always taking the lower roll, not the higher roll. So you're essentially consolidating from, you know, will one or two of four dice hit to will one of one dice hit. Yeah. So like that that might be the use case here, but that's kind of lame. This is not a huge issue with the homebrew. This is actually the same problem that normal true strike has. It's, it's just pretty much useless unless you can do it as, like, a free action. Yeah. The problem here is that True Strike as a bonus action is a good way to fix True Strike for any class that cannot attack as a bonus action. But this is the class that can attack as a bonus Yeah, so this needs to be free or something to make it yeah. work. Anyway. It doesn't severely change the way that I would use subclass, because really it's not the main point. Like, the main point is you're a third caster, and then you have some other features that you get later. I would not say that True Strike is the crux upon which this subclass lies, uh, but it is kind of unfortunate that that is a feature that is enumerated and is more or less meaningless because True Strike is a bad cantrip. Yeah. I cannot think of it right now, but I write, might write in the description of the episode my fix for this should I come to one. So go check in the details below the link to this subclass and see if I've actually come to anything. Because again, this is just like, I'd like to make this feature like a little bit useful, even though it's meant to be a small thing. I believe you can do it. I think I think you can. And there might be, if you like look at the initial Reddit post for this, which will be linked in the description, there might be some comments in there. It's been a while since I've combed through those to see if anyone has specifically highlighted this. Because someone probably has, knowing the way that people tend to operate on r slash UA. But keep an eye out. And if, if Andrew has any ideas, I'm sure he will do a great job in enumerating those. So hopefully you can turn this feature around a little bit. 
yeah, so literally there are people in the comments of the Reddit post. Get in the comments, as Brendan Lee Mulligan says. So the place where people will say it's good is if you like know you're about to get in a fight. Like if you have like the ambush set. Oh, that's all. That's always the excuse. That's always for the why excuse for true strike. You're true like, strike. It's not. And then what are you what are you doing with your action when you're about to get into a fight, right? Like yeah, then the it existing as a bonus action doesn't help. Ah, God, this is this is frustrating, and this is props to people who try and fix true strike. But at a certain point, it is a losing game. It, it's just a thing that has that is not going to be good because advantage disadvantage has simplified the system to a point where these like bonuses don't. It's it's like it's not a bad thing. It just doesn't really work with five E anymore. It has to be written some other way. Yeah. Anyway, all that said, get in the comments. Talk about True Strike. We love to poop on True Strike in this chat. But for now, we'll move on to the sixth level feature, which is arcane forging, which means you take a monk weapon, and it becomes a lightsaber. Well, it does force damage, and it's your spellcasting focus. Both of which are nice. This is a very small ability for the 6th level feature, but you'll have to remember that the progression of this monk is all sorts of weird because you're getting new spellcasting at levels that monks should not be getting new subclass features. So we forgive the relatively small but very flavorful ability here. Yeah. I will say one of the frustrations that I get out of this is just, like, until I read that it becomes your focus, I forgot that you don't have a focus naturally with this class, which does mean that you need to be, like, holding material components in between 3rd level and 6th level, or you need to have your hand free for somatic, or for just for general somatic components. Yeah, this is, it's a little late in the game for it. Honestly, if this subclass had said to me that you are single attribute dependent using your not a lightsaber and can use wisdom for it, I wouldn't have blinked. Like, yeah. that would have been something that is probably, like, reasonably strong for a monk, but especially if you don't get it immediately and you have to deal with not being single attribute dependent for the first six levels of the game. Yeah. I would have been okay with. It's not a first level hex dip where you're all of a sudden... uh single attribute dependent as a warlock you know this is you still you know this would take you till sex level to get and also in theory monks are still pretty dependent on having dexterity for one if you don't want to use this weapon or two your ac calculated on armored it still requires you to have a decent dex so yeah it would not be too much for me to say that arcane forging that's you use your wisdom modifier to attack with your not lightsaber. The 11th level feature is flowing defense, and the short version of what this is is this is really just the the feature deflect missiles that the monk gets, except now you can do it for spell ranged attacks instead of just for ranged weapon attacks, which is, I mean, it's at least pretty darn cool. I mean, you're do the Jedi who's knocking back the fire bolts back at the casters. I'm not entirely sure how useful it is, but it kind of depends on how many ranged spell attacks you're getting that are meaningful to deflect. On average, it's just going to reduce the damage you take, which is pretty good anyway, right? Like, it's 1d10 plus wisdom plus monk, which by 11th level is at least 
on average like 16 to 20 damage depending on what your wisdom modifier is so i like this i like this so much a little bit of a game story here because i've always thought that deflect missiles is kind of a niche ability but when it works it is the best thing ever and i point you to pat that one time in Moonrakers when uh, we were trying to cross, I think it was a lava river that had like salamanders hiding in it. Mm-hmm. And the monk, Rana, basically was like wall climbing um, to get over this lava river. And right at the apex when she was on the ceiling, one of the salamanders took the opportunity to throw a spear up at her. We didn't know they were there, so this was like an ad advantage attack. Of course it hit. And while she's climbing, she just caught it and chucked it back at him. And it was the coolest fucking thing. Yeah. So, I know this is niche. I know this is niche. I love it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I I think it's, it's easy to get dug in the weeds, and that's kind of where I've been with it. It's like, oh, well, you know, how often is it useful? But it's literally, I mean, it's a free reaction to take, which means you can do it all the time. Although, it's not a free reaction, it's a reaction. So, like, you can only do it once per round, but... You can do it, and if you want to send it back, you can use your key points to send it back. They do a pretty reasonable scaling thing here, where uh, if you want to send it backwards, it costs more key to send back a higher level spell, which is just good because you don't want someone like upcasting a really high level like guiding bolt. It like it should reasonably take you more to do that because otherwise the damage math gets really crazy. I mean, that's their fault for sending a high-level guiding bolt at the way of the Weave Monk, but... True, and and for rolling pitifully on their damage dice, you know, the better you do on your damage dice, the less likely it is that you get thrown, is thrown back at you, so... I am of the opinion, I know that this is meant to be, like, deflecting the laser with a, light, with a lightsaber. I think this is much more evocative if you just catch the guiding bolt <laughs> and, like, baseball throw it back. Yeah, I this is a really great opportunity to put some flavor into your gameplay. I... And I, I'd be inclined that if you if you flavor it the right way, this is like a this is a point of inspiration waiting to happen at my table. So the last ability, we're at seventeenth level now, so you're not seeing this for a while, is a method of moving key points into spell slots. I, I know that you have some issues with this feature. I like it though because it allows the monk at high levels to still make use of their spell slots when it's a very long encounter day and they're getting their key back because they're short resting but they're not getting long rests so their spells have been exhausted yeah i think i overall it's it's a it's a weird thing um because there's always kind of a interesting trade-off between key points and spell slots and the way that you do it and there's no limit to how... I mean, so there is a limit in the sense of the created spell slot vanish at the end of a short or long rest. So they're avoiding the one hack that people found where, like, if you use sorcery points to generate spell slots and then you're a, sh- a short rest caster, then you, like, get infinite spell slots. Like, they do they do, do away with that, which is smart. But it's it's just, like, it's a, it's a bit costly. I'll, but also you can do it as a bonus action, which throws a whole thing into combat of, like, you're, you're kind of encouraged to just, like spell cast as much as you can in combat with this but you're also 17th level and your monk dice are now doing a lot of damage too so it's just it kind of it really depends on what spells you're taking whether or not this is something that's meaningful for you at this late in the game 
Yeah, I agree. I don't quite know how a high level Way of the Weave Monk is supposed to play in terms of the interplay between punching things and using your backing uh, forged weapon and spell casting. Like, I'd be interested to see what the optimal, like, playstyle is. And obviously, it depends on what sort of spells you're getting. But most of your spells aren't really combat spells. By 17th level, you do have the ability to haste and slow, which is, like, really cool. Mm -hmm. But until that time, uh, there aren't a ton of spells that are, like, really, really combat useful for you. Yeah, all that to say, I think if, if this summarizes the way that I kind of feel about the entire subclass from a non-roleplay perspective. From a roleplay perspective, I really like it. I think there's a lot of flavor here. I think it does spell. It's definitely doing spellcasting better than Wave the Four Elements does by creating a clear segmentation between what is key, what is spell slots, and what overlap there is is generally reserved for later levels it's like all that stuff's really good i it's just i think ultimately i'm not a big fan of third casters on average and especially with the monk it's always so hard because they are kind of torn between this long rest and short rest play style and the martial arts is supposed to be a pretty big feature of like how their damage math scales and it kind of gets thrown in a weird place with all of this so i i like it i would definitely recommend it for short things, I have no idea how it behaves at high levels and would want to see more play testing. I think, before I, like, let a player take this for a longer campaign. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think, if anything, it's a little underpowered at low levels, which is fine, because, again, I can totally see this being played primarily for the theming of it. That said, I don't know what this looks like. Like, and it is a problem that just monks have when you introduce spellcasting, is that a monk's turn is so, so busy anyway. Yeah. Going back to the idea of, like, the true strike issue, is that this foreseen fighting ability works really well for anybody who isn't a monk. Casting as a bonus action and without concentration makes anybody who doesn't have that really powerful bonus action economy that the monk has feel really great. But for a monk, it's very eh. Yeah. I mean, that gets to a heart, a deeper heart conversation of the way that bonus action economy works between different classes and then also, again, what true strike means. But it, it really is, I think, just a, a complicated space to build spell casting in for the monk because of everything that they can do with their turn and what they can do with their key points versus their spells. It, it just gets very busy very quickly. And I would I'd almost say that in a party that already has like a divination or transmutation wizard, there's a lot of this that probably just ends up being kind of useless, which is, you know, hopefully not the way it works. Hopefully you can play creatively. But this is one that probably takes a lot of planning in your builds before you choose your spells, because as a reminder, you are a known spellcaster, so you don't get to swap out. Yeah, the the spell list that you end up with, I, I've pulled up the like first through third, because I'm not even considering the fourth level spells. Wizard, Divination, Transmutation spells. Dragon's Breath, Catapult are like combat things, but most of these things really feel more like kind of intrigue campaign, investigative, or getting around the dungeon level using like by transmuting things abilities which is cool 
And I think that this class could do a really good, like, sort of, like, gumshoe detective sort of thing. But that's clearly not what it was built for. So that's an interesting, like, intersection. Yeah. The one thing I'll say is, um, you know what a fourth level transmutation spell is? You're, you're thinking about polymorph, aren't you? I am thinking about polymorph. I, I knew you were thinking about polymorph. <laughs> yeah. You do lose out, because unfortunately, I guess, equipment is supposed to, like, merge into your form, and you're not able to benefit from it, so you can't really have a bear with lightsaber paws. But if I were the DM, and you were a 17th level Jedi, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. Like, obviously, you keep, like, some class abilities, Obviously not, like, spellcasting when you polymorph. But, like, could you argue that if it would be less that your attack can use the martial arts die in your polymorphed form? I, I suspect that, like, rules as written, it's supposed to be no. Yeah. But... These are the questions. Uh, at that level, maybe you can afford to be a little bit silly. Martial arts, Jeremy... Or, martial arts poly polymorph. Were you about to type Jeremy Crawford to see if he had tweeted about it or something? I was. Sage advice. <laughs> oh, it's not immediate. Not immediately getting an answer. Okay, the target's game statistics, other than alignment and personality, are replaced by the chosen form. So no, you don't get any class shit. Lame. Alright, it makes sense. I understand it. But also, I want my Jedi bear. God damn it, Crawford. Get in the comments. Let's be clear. Polymorph is already a ball ache for everyone involved. Yeah. It breaks encounters, and they've done their damnedest to make sure it doesn't, with the very clunky limiting the challenge rating to the level or challenge rating of the target, which I think is a wholly clunky system, but does try to simplify it as much as possible and prevent polymorph from being like the best spell in the game yeah someday someone will make like a new polymorph spell that will be interesting to maybe analyze homebrew wise i'm partial to thinking about ways that you have like a cr floor or a or like a shape or size ceiling or floor restrictions that make it a little less like meme in the way that you turn the big giant dragon into a chicken but yeah it used to be the case and this is Andrew going off on a 3.5 tangent again, so uh, see you guys later for those of you who are, like, muting now. Um, there used to be two polymorphs. There used to be the polymorph spell, which was used uh, exclusively for, like, turning your friends into bears for them to, like, fuck things up. And then there was baleful polymorph, which was the one that you could target unwilling creatures with, which was specifically turn you into a toad. Mm. I like that. What 5e has done is they've made that the same spell, and there's been some growing pains <laughs> by doing that. All right, well, consider it the Homebrewers Commission. Uh, if you end up coming with a polymorph alternative, let us know. Maybe we'll review it. I'd be curious to see what it looks like to change what this looks like. Give it the sort of treatment that the summon spells got with Tasha's. I feel like that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, that, that would be real cool. But until that time, well... Until next week, which won't be that time, but will be a time to be looking at some homebrew. We have got to get going. Yep, for Arcana Uncorked, I'm Patrick. And I've been Andrew. Have a good one. Bye.